You know why I'm so passionate about Music to Code By? Because it works. I'm still getting a steady stream of success stories from developers just like you who sail effortlessly through hours of coding. There's only one problem. They can't get enough. Well, not only are we up to track 13, but you can download them all in one shot for a new low price. The collection was 54 bucks just a little while ago, still only a little more than four bucks a track, but now you can get all 13 for only 39 bucks. That's only three bucks a track. Yeah, that's more like it. 325 minutes of pure bliss. Go get it now at collection.musictocodeby.net. .NET Rocks, episode 1333, with guest Chiming Liu. Recorded Friday, July 22nd, 2016. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin with a full voice. Yeah, you sound pretty good, buddy. <laughs> And you're Richard Campbell, aren't you? I am Richard Campbell, and I've had my voice the whole time. That's right. But I, and I think we're finally out of the the shows recorded the, of the I don't know, thirteen or fourteen of them that we yeah. did at NDC, where I could barely talk. Right, and then we did those over just like three days. Yeah. So, but they've been spread out over a couple three months. So mm -hmm. you, every so often we get a show back in where it's like, what's wrong with Carl? Yeah, I know <laughs> it's crazy. <laughs> Which Terrible. just clearly explains you should never be sick. Yeah, I know. That's kind of what happens when you make your living with your voice. You know, yeah. Yeah. I get a little hyper-focused on it. So, you're, um, this is coming out August 10th, day before my yep. birthday. And you, do you think you're back in the basement by now? <laughs> well, no. I, I'll be in. I'll I'll be up. Uh, it's near Svalbard. I'll be on a little trawler on my Arctic Ocean expedition with uh, a few friends and some polar bears. Richard, you just remind me of that. You know, great grandfather who came back from safari, and all the kids are sitting at his feet while he regales them in his pith helmet with tales of your exploits and adventures. <laughs> <laughs> and you know I've got that crazy camera now, right? The the Rico Theta S. That's right. So you you should be there too when we're standing, you know, on the little boat and when we're taking the Zodiac to the shore and when we're fleeing our for our lives from the polar bear. Like I'll have pictures. What he's talking about is a three hundred and sixty degree camera that can take twenty five minutes of video in all directions. Yeah. It's pretty amazing. And then of course while while the video is playing, you can pan around and look and I think it'd probably be pretty good for a Oculus Rift, don't you think? Yeah, I'll bet you and I've heard that the Gear VR will be the first that actually implements it, but the Facebook client already implements it properly right away. So mm. that's that's pretty cool. Uh you know, and the thing I you know, normally I don't bother with cameras because if you're gonna hang out with guys like Kim Tripp and Paul Randall and Scott Stanfield, who are all on this crazy trip, yeah. Well, they've got huge camera rigs and they're really good at their equipment. They're gonna take better pictures than you anyway. Yeah. But I, the picture I wanted to capture is us sitting around that little table at dinner. Right, like mm -hmm. the, the little more intimate moments, yeah. and this seems like the device to do it. So it's it's the super selfie stick is really what it is. Very good. You know, I could just sit and talk to you all day. Oh, wait a minute, I do. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you do. <laughs> Maybe we should do some Google Hangouts pretty soon, see if anybody wants to join us, and we'll just talk. Yep. But 
we got a show to do here. And before we get started with Chiming Liu, we're going to uh, do a little thing that I call Better Know Framework. Awesome. All right, buddy. What do you got? I got something great. Great? It's called Gatsby. Oh, no, not the great Gatsby. Well, it's called Gatsby. It's a uh, GitHub project. That it, it, Check this out. This transforms plain text into dynamic blogs and websites using the latest web technologies. It's a React.js static site generator. So it supports Markdown, HTML, and React.js pages out of the box. Easy to add support for additional file types, of course. But it leverages React's component model and React Router's nested component hierarchy to make templating incredibly powerful and intuitive. And I love this. They say, build sites like it's 1995. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. GeoCities. Yeah. Files are trans... Carl and Gary's VB homepage, right? Yeah. Files are translated into HTML pages at the same position within the file system, add a markdown file, and it's converted to an index and uh, all of that stuff. So I thought that was kind of fun. And... Um, there you go. That's it's awesome. Gatsby, man. and that's at thirteen thirty three dot pop dot me, or just look up Gatsby JS on GitHub. Cool. Who's talking to us, man? Grabbed a comment off of show twelve fifty eight, the one we did with Chris Canal on the Scott Net Rocks tour. If you remember that, oh, that was an awesome show. I, I the guy rattled off more tools and and free stuff than I'd ever heard in my life. I'm the guy who collects all the links. So as he's writing, rattling them off, I'm you know googling as fast as I can. I think <laughs> I ended up with what fifteen of them, eighteen yeah. of them. It's crazy crazy and uh, lots of great commentary on this show but this uh, particular comment is i think the most telling one and it's a bit of critical of us as well this is from charles who says mm-hmm. something that strikes me with all these client-side frameworks is that spa single page applications get used in completely inappropriate scenarios starting with displaying a simple blog entry or an article and i'm sorry to say but as much as i am a fan of dotnet rocks your website is a prime example of an unnecessary spa no oh. I'm not going to disagree with that per se. You know, yeah. we we were we used to get yelled at because our site was too archaic. Yeah. And so when we had the opportunity to work with Joe Hewlin and he wanted to experiment, we kind of let him go wild. Yeah. I think the site's cool, but it does have some issues. Yeah. But Charles goes on to say, you should try visiting .NET Rocks with, a jet, with JavaScript disabled to see the problem. Dude, you JavaScript should try doing disabled. anything with JavaScript disabled and see the problem. <laughs> yeah. JavaScript like is kind of the... On, yeah, it's kind of the blood of the internet. It's like... Yeah, you should try surfing with the computer unplugged. Uh, I think the monitor off would be even better. <laughs> Just turn your monitor there are off. Increasing number of sites that simply display a blank page without JavaScript. That's yeah. true. I care enough about .NET Rocks to add an exception to my browser, but that's not the case for most sites. Yeah, that's interesting. Okay, I don't think that's the solution to the web going forward. Is to convince everybody to disable. JavaScript. JavaScript. Yeah. I mean, that was a, that was a weird security request out of, I think, a, uh, an Accenture security document like 10 years ago. Mm. It was pretty much panned at the time because it's just like, yeah, this is, it's just cutting your arm off, really. But we definitely do understand, you know, the whole spa thing. Some people like them, some people don't. And as a matter of fact, I think what he's talking about is we have a, the details, the show details is a sort of a pop-up window. Yeah. And it can be kind of difficult to navigate, especially on a mobile phone. So what we're yep. what we're gonna do, and Joel's already down with this, is we're gonna just change that to another page with a permalink. And, you know, that's that's what it needs to be. So make that stuff easier. And Charles yeah. does go on to say, look, there's a small number of websites where a spa is justified, for instance, webmail, trading platform, so on for everything else. 
developers should try to discover the virtues of good old server-side generated HTML. Mm. And uh, you know what? I don't think we're going to want to rediscover that. It's just not scalable, right? Mm -hmm. Modern web is about reducing load on the server and utilizing the browser's capabilities. That's, yeah. it's, kind, it's kind of essential. But I do agree that the spa metaphor has a narrow area of application and it impedes certain things when you go too far with it. And we're sure. fighting that right now. Absolutely. So, Charles, thank you so much for your comment. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or via any of our social media because we publish every show to Google Plus and Facebook. And if you comment there and we read it on the show, we'll send you a mug. And definitely follow us on Twitter. I'm at Carl Franklin. He's at Richard Campbell. And, uh, you know, send us tweets. They're 360 degrees. Nice. Hey, uh, let's talk to Chi Ming Liu. He is a London-based software consultant working in the financial services industry. Chi Ming enjoys working across the full application stack and has extensive experience building real-time trading systems. Wow, that's cool. He's passionate about .NET, open source software, cloud technologies, the Chelsea Football Club, and as much electronic gadgetry as he can get his hands on. He tweets at underscore... Q O O R O O Kuru and <laughs> yeah okay and blogs for adaptive consulting at whereadaptive.com welcome Chi Ming thanks guys big fan of the show really happy to be here oh that's awesome well we're glad to have you here so first of all do you have any comment on the comment um that's I mean I I I have done I think the same myself when the um when the spa rush came out I suppose uh John Papa did a lot of uh evangelism on that front and uh mm. I I did I did try to write a um a, a a blog site in in Angular and I have to say um I I'm just going to leave WordPress to do that from now <laughs> on I think <laughs> just because you can make a blog site doesn't mean you yep. should yeah exactly sure. So yeah, I, we we totally agree. And you know, spas are cool for some things. They have their own set of problems, and uh, I, I you could probably say a little bit of that is just we want to take this new technology and this new architecture for a ride and see what happens. Sure. Mm. Mm. So let's talk about reactive and React, reactive Trader Cloud, React, React JS. <laughs> yeah. So um, yeah. So reactive Trader Cloud is a new application that we've open sourced and uh, something I'm pretty excited to talk about. Um, it's a demo for an exchange or FX trading platform that we've built at Adaptive to showcase reactive programming principles applied across the full stack of the application. Um, our main aims were to demonstrate how you can architect a resilient, scalable, real-time system with modern technologies. And it also has an all-inclusive theme. So whichever part of the stack you work on, whichever platform you develop on, um, hopefully there's something in the project that should be of interest to you and you can take a look around and hack around with. That sounds awesome. I, I want to dive into that a little bit. But first, I think we need a little disambiguation. React, mm. Reactive, <laughs> React.js. Uh, yes. let's, let's disambiguate, shall we? Yep. So let's start with... Um, React.js. So React.js is a JavaScript framework, a front-end one that um, involves a virtual DOM um, and uh, is often used with a Redux model um, whereby, um, yeah, messages are, uh, your, your, your application state um, is queued up. So you have control of state all the time. 
Um, reactive programming, or sometimes functional reactive programming, is a paradigm um, whereby uh, push data is, um, is 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 the first class citizen, mm. and your program typically um, in something, for example, in reactive extensions. Um, can consume streams of data, can compose them together, can do buffering, windowing, and all sorts of operations otherwise difficult to do mm. in a uh, callback scenario. Right. So we're not talking about the React framework that Facebook makes. Um, so we are actually using the React framework for our client uh, a web application in Reactive okay. Trader. But we, so to give you a bit of background, um, as a back to the group of people here, um, we have been fans of the Reactive Extensions framework ever since it was in beta back in 2010, mm. approximately, I think. Um, and we've been using it um, across the full stack um, in, in the financial in the, in the services industry. Um, so, yeah, so we are a big fan of that. And mm. the Reactive Trader Cloud, this application we're open sourcing, we are kind of expanding and extending the concept to to everything from a reactive ui to a uh, reactive architecture um and all the all the way across to um a devops a deployment system which can react to failures and be resilient and be scalable so then i guess the obvious question is is react reactive (laughs) (laughs) um in in i guess in the in the reactive extension sense, no, it's a, it's something which, um, forces state through a serialized queue so that you don't have any cross threading issues. And okay. you, you, you're, you know, for sure that whatever your state you have at, at that time is consistent. Um, so in terms of a, um, reactive programming paradigm where you have things like I observables, then I guess it's not, no. Yeah. So then uh, when I heard you were doing this trading, real-time trading system, it made perfect sense for reactive extensions because as we know, and we've talked about on the show, the reactive extensions sort of, um, as a as opposed to sort of handling events and dealing with, you know, setting flags and doing all this kind of other state-based event handling, which is gets dubious and really, really complex. Reactive extensions sort of allow you to aggregate things that happen that you would, in another system, handle with event handling, right? Event handlers and that kind of stuff. But then allows you to sort of just look at all of those things that happen and say, when this happens, do this. When this happens, do that. Yeah, exactly. Um, and what is super useful in, 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 um, reactive extensions is the, is the fact that you can compose the streams and also the unchaining or the unsubscription um, is very, very easily done because when you do subscribe to a screen, to a stream, you are returned an I disposable. So you already have a, a first class handle to that stream. Um, so, and with that, um, you can unsubscribe and un, un, unhook the whole chain up to like the base mm. uh, source that's pumping effectively. And every time we talk about the reactive extensions, I think, you know, it should, this should just be the way that <laughs> .NET apps are built, you know. There's so many uses for it. Yeah, I mean, there are. It's definitely very helpful in many situations. Um, however, maybe maybe not at all because in some server scenarios, um, 
we can also prefer a um, a similar approach to how they do Redux um, in, the, in the JavaScript client world, whereby um, all states still come through a single queue um, and everything is done by message parsing. So message parsing is sort of a different way to look at the problem. Um, I mean, stuff like Akka um, also doesn't use reactive extensions, but fares perfectly well with concurrency and uh, yeah, pushing data. Okay. Can you tell us a little bit about um, how Reactive Trader Cloud is used from a user perspective and what it does? And then maybe we can dig a little bit into the architecture. Yeah, sure. Brilliant. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, just to give an overview, the client UI is a, is a foreign exchange trading screen. Um, so the app consists of a series of tiles representing currency pairs, for example, euro dollar, uh, displaying live prices, which are pushed from the server and ticking in real time. And you oh can boy, we can by... watch the uh, the British pound collapse. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good. No, point. I said out think... loud. That's not right. I feel I feel bad. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm just laughing sorry. at how evil Richard is. I'm not laughing at the Brits. <laughs> <laughs> I feel so sorry. Yeah. Um, I, because because we are pushing dummy data, I believe we are still at the uh, very optimistic exchange rates that were oh. that we had uh, about a few months ago. I don't think we've updated that bit yet. <laughs> <laughs> you you oh. live in a better world, I think. <laughs> yeah. Well, if if only those the profits on Reactor Trader were real. Yeah. <clears throat> So, uh, yeah, so you can trade by clicking on tiles to buy or sell at the displayed price. Um, you can also see a list of historical trades and view your current position. So how much money you're making or losing. Mm. Uh, we do have a deployed version out in the wild. If you, if anyone wants to take a look, um, the URL is web-demo.adaptivecluster.com. Mm. I'm sure if you okay. can show notes, that'd be great. Yeah. So that's how the app basically functions um but so and the actually the app originated from a v1 of react trader which we open sourced back in 2014 um and the what what the rewrite of reactive trader cloud we wanted to uh achieve with it it was one modernize the client stack so we so the client side is um, implemented with uh, react js um using a state management library called esp um, which is similar to Redux, but it's written by one of the guys here called Keith. Um, and also, we also like the V1 product. We also have um, uh, iOS and Android clients written in Xamarin as well. And I think we have nice. an Apple Watch app as well, which wow. is pretty cool. Um, but the but it's really the backend architecture, which um, is pretty sweet i think um so we put a lot of thought into the architecture of the whole system before we started um because we really wanted to be a feature of the application um although it's a demo project we still wanted the architecture to be production worthy in, in a real environment and something that would be happy to support if it was used in the live trading system uh, that means uh, a system that's easily built easily deployed easily upgraded uh, full tolerant and scalable um, so I'll just give a quick, like 10,000 feet bird's eye view of what the architecture looks okay. like. So the backend consists of a series of microservices all written in .NET Core. Um, there may be a number of deployed instances of each microservice for scalability. Um, our data persistence is handled by event store, which the .NET Core microservices connect to. Um, event store is a great event sourcing tool written in.net. Uh, I think it's from Greg Young 
and interactions between each of the microservices and event store follows the CQRS pattern. Mm-hmm. So we so we completely segregate all the reads and the write functionalities. Um, to tie it together for messaging, um, each microservice connects to a central message broker component via WebSockets. Great. Um, I'll talk a bit more on that later because it's a pretty interesting part of the architecture. Yeah. So we do have a central uh, message router. Um, and on the client side, like I mentioned, we have a number of implementations and they all connect to the central message broker as well. So is this on-premise, uh, the servers, or is it in the cloud? Yep. So for deployment, we have also built each component as a Docker image, um, So we, which, which means each, each .NET Core microservice, the event store server, the message broker, and an Nginx web server, which serves the client files, they are all Dockerized in, in, in awesome. container images. Yeah. And, so, and then we deploy the containers um, into a Kubernetes cluster yeah. into the cloud, Ooh. public cloud, nice. which allows us to abstract away all the machine-specific deployment configurations that we don't really care about. Yeah. Because you only normally hear about Kubernetes in the context of Google Cloud. Are you actually deploying it elsewhere? So, no, we are, we are using Google Cloud at this moment in time. Um, right. but to be honest, Google Cloud for us is, is just infrastructure as a service that, that is all right. we're using it for. Mm. Um, we use a bit of the logging uh, aspect, I suppose, but that's pretty much it. Um, what's really cool in addition is that every single part of, um, React Trader Cloud is open source. All the code, or our deployment scripts, or our Docker files, and every single library we're using is open source. And if you work nice. in finance, you know how rare that is for a trading application. Yeah, yeah. no kidding. That's it's huge. I'm interested that you're using Docker and sort of Kubernetes side by side. I, I thought they the two would sort of, were sort of mutually exclusive. So. Container or- or- orchestration is what we're talking about. So once you have built your containers. Um, you, the power of that really comes from how you leverage them and how you move them right. around. So there are a few container uh, orchestration tools around, of which Kubernetes is one of them. Okay. Um, Docker, Docker recently launched Docker Swarm, which is a native uh, tool for Docker to, to do something, basically the same thing. Uh, and there are also other implementations such as Mesosphere, etc. And the difference between them really is that they come in a different uh, sort of levels. So Mesosphere is, is relatively low level. Docker Swarm is a bit more easy to get up with and, and simple, simplistic. And we found that Kubernetes had the right mixture of um, opinions, its own opinions, and also flexibility in what we needed. And it's also open source, so that's that's hard yeah. to resist. And it's also, but yeah, and it's cool. also by uh, Brendan Burns, who uh, I believe now works for Azure. Yes, has moved over to the Azure team, which is a hint at yeah. uh, how where Kubernetes is likely to go. Mm. You mentioned WebSockets. Are you using SignalR or are you doing it manually? Yeah, so the messaging, like yeah, like I said, the messaging part of the application is pretty interesting. Um, so the messaging setup we have um, is built on the Web Application Messaging Protocol, or WAMP mm-hmm. is the acronym, um, which in effect is a layer built on top of WebSockets and gives you messaging primitives such as RPC and PubSub. Um, I guess you can say that WAMP is to WebSockets as HTTP is to TCP sockets. Right, right. Um, because w- with, a, with a raw WebSocket, you can send receive bytes, but that's pretty much all you can do. And so it sounds like very SignalR-like. 
Yeah, it's it's very Signal-like in many aspects. Signal-R um, has its own paradigms. It has the it has the hub, and the way you do RPC is is a bit different. Right. Um, the central message broker we're using is actually called Crossbar IO, and which is the actually the most fully featured open source WAMP broker out there. Great. And that that and that's also written in Python. Okay. Um, which again, um, kind of allows you to appreciate how useful a container is because mm-hmm. you can just shove a Python app next to a .NET Core app and it'll run very nicely together. Sure. How's the .NET Core running in Linux these days? <laughs> um, it's pretty good. We, we've, we've had a long journey with it. So we actually started, um, Reactive Trader Cloud back in October, November time, which was RC1. Uh, time 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 frame mm-hmm. um so <laughs> so we so our first cut so, so when we set out we um we knew we wanted to target this sort of microservices architecture with docker and kubernetes um so we know where we were going and for that front so when it came to dotnet core our first implementation was with uh, dnx dnvm and we were actually uh, running on mono uh, just because, um, if anyone with an experience working with .NET Core, they can surely appreciate most of the pain is the fact that your dependent libraries haven't quite made it to .NET Core yet. Um, so that's why we started with Mono, um, and that was sort of working, but we had very strange bugs for WebSockets in Mono, which you know, if you just straight off the wire, if there was silence, then there's not much you can do. So. Yeah. Um, yeah, so the decision was made to move to .NET Core when RC2 came out. Um, and that was, uh, that was a very cool journey because, um, yeah, main, mainly because of, so of the amount of community support there was and I found personally anyway. Yeah. Um, so we had two blockers. We had one with the event store client library and also the WAMP Sharp library, which was written by, uh, Elad Zellinger, a very, uh, really nice contribution to the to the c-sharp community to 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 make the uh, wamp sharp c-sharp client um so the event store library was pretty easy to convert we grabbed the source code um convert change the apis where they have shifted in .NET core and they recompiled with no problems um with the wamp sharp client library we had to dig around for a WebSocket implementation mm. and that was a pretty difficult uh, eventually we found one from a uh, i think a, a temporary asp.net team a repository mm-hmm. and couple that together with a repository from ravendb that they were working on and then we finally got a socket that was working um however i believe now um steven taub has committed a cross uh, platform web socket into the repository, which should be out with the 1.1 release of .NET Core. So if when that happens, everything will be super nice. Fantastic. Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. You know what time it is right now? Uh, must be that happy time again. Yeah, you know it. It's time to convert all my pounds sterling to shares of adaptive consulting. I'll tell you that much <laughs> right now. <laughs> I'm so down with this. Actually, it's time to give away a two Keto Dudes coffee mug to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. Two Keto Dudes is a new podcast that chronicles the story of how I and Richard Morris, a developer and ex-CTO of Developer Express, completely reversed our type 2 diabetes, lost 70 pounds, and evaded heart disease with no drugs, 
just real food and a little unraveling of conventional wisdom. You can do it too. Go to twoketodudes.com and check it out. That's the number two, K-E-T-O, dudes.com. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner, Richard, is Paige Cook. Ah, congratulations, Paige. Yeah. Golf clap for you. Golf clap for Paige. And uh, Paige just won a Two Keto Dudes coffee mug. Hey, we know it's not $2,000 worth of uh, software, but it's coveted, let me tell you. And uh, if you don't know what we're doing here, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .net Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. In every show, we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But you have to sign up to win. And uh, we also like to ask our guest, Chi Ming, if you had $5,000 to spend today on technology, what would you buy? Oh, so, so I have been thinking about this. Um, so I've got solar panels on the roof of my house. So nice. what I really would like, but I can't really get now because I'm in the UK, mm. um, are a couple of the Tesla Powerwall batteries. Oh, um, yeah. Because those things, not only do they look super nice, um, I think, yeah, it's just a brilliant idea. You said you and had solar I, panels on your roof? Yep, yep. Do you guys have sun in the UK? <laughs> just curious. <laughs> <laughs> We've had it for the last two days. Oh, so, nice. uh, I, I, I get about two days a year of sun. But you, it's sun doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be a sunny day in order for you to gather sun energy, right? You can get it even if it's cloudy, right? Yeah, I mean, obviously the 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 the, the, the wattage of what you're getting drops, but um, yeah, you get you do get some, and uh, a storage for that would be brilliant. Absolutely. Well, and I see that the Powerwall site is allowing you to reserve one in the UK now, so they're not shipping yet, but they mm. clearly have intent to. Yeah, I, I, I think that they are shipping the commercial ones, which start like over 100k uh, sterling. So uh, yeah, that's a bit over the 5k budget. Mm. Yeah, it seems a little, little extreme. Mm. But you know, mm-hmm. yeah, the the small it looks like the small ones are there too. So you, you need to order. Mm-hmm. Get on yes. the list. <laughs> it's very cool. I bet you have a big uh API planned when you connect all that <laughs> stuff up, huh? Oh, we'll see. It'll mm-hmm. be uh yeah. You'd be It'll using be a reactive framework with. for that, I'll tell you. <laughs> and speaking of reactive program, let's get back there for a minute. Um, yeah, you, sure. you like to say everything is a stream in reactive yes. programming. And what do you mean by that exactly? Yeah. So with, with, even with version one of reactive trader, we wanted to demonstrate, um, the power of streaming. Um, like I said, we've been using reactive extensions for a while. Um, and now Rx is hugely popular and it's made its way into many languages such as JavaScript with RxJS. Um, but yeah, you know, a few of my JavaScript friends didn't know they originally came out of Microsoft and .NET, actually. Yeah. Um, but um, yeah, but it was ideal for the sort of projects we were working on, since we were dealing with a lot of live streaming data, such as like yeah, taking prices, for example. Yeah. Um, but in Reactive Trader Cloud, we have taken that principle, that reactive principle, a bit further as well. Um, on top of a reactive tra- uh, user interface, which receives a stream of data and updates in real time. Um, we can also treat other considerations of the stream. Uh, for example, in Reactive Trader Cloud, we display the number of instances of each microservice that's available in the client's UI. 
And if a name instance is provisioned or an instance goes down, then the client will be informed. So essentially, instead of a traditional setup where a client would have a service endpoint in its own static config file and would connect to it on startup and throw an exception if the connection gets broken, we push the configuration information for connecting to our microservices to the client via heartbeat messages through the message broker, mm. i.e. each microservice periodically broadcasts to a well-known topic um, a message saying, I'm still alive, I'm still alive, and here is my address if you want to connect to me. Nice. So this expectation that your server components may go down can also be used to provide a better user experience for the app. And it's another advantage of a microservices architecture, which we wanted to showcase. Um, for example, it, uh, in the rest of Trader Cloud, if the, say, the trade execution service dies, um, the client would be alerted to the fact that it's gone down due to the absence of heartbeat messages for that service. And the client's app would simply not allow you to click to trade. However, streaming prices would can still continue. You can still see the prices and you can still view your positions and your trade history. And the entire app wouldn't just crash because a server component has died. And nice. in addition to that, by using um, a heart beating mechanism, we can also perform load balancing very easily. So mm -hmm. each microservice can simply broadcast within its heartbeat message its own load at that particular moment in time. So when a new client initializes, it can observe that there may be, say, two instances of a service sending heartbeats, but would favor the one with a lower load and just yeah. choose to connect to that one. Right. And that also works very well. Um, in a fault tolerance use case, whereby if one service instance crashes and dies, its, its connected clients would still be pushed the heartbeats of the other instances, so it can recover and reconnect to those instances. So what's the storage mechanism under the hood here? Right. What do, you, do you actually, are you writing records somewhere? I mean, I'm making trades. I've been doing very well, actually, on the, <laughs> uh, the, the US-New Zealand trade. Yeah. Oh, yes, I can see that. You're trading on the gen. <laughs> Creepy. <laughs> there one. I I I just put a uh, a fifty million euro dollar trade in for you as well. No, I see it. <laughs> um, yeah. So under the so for data data persistence, we're using uh, Event Store. Okay. So again, it is a event sourcing database effectively that uh, works very well with a reactive paradigm. So, um. In event sourcing, uh, you don't um, mutate data records, you just append. So any any mutation occurs with a new event, So and your state of the world comes from an aggregation of all historical events. So right. that gives you a lot of flexibility because you can retrospectively go back and, and see exactly what's going on. N no data is ever lost. Um, well, and and also, in, in, in trading rules, everything's eternal entry, right? You never update anything. Yes. You just add new rows or yes. Yes, new yes, objects. Precisely. It, it, it's all about chronology. Order matters. Yep, exactly. Um, and event store is particularly good because it is also uh, it can also do clustering natively. So that ties in with our uh, scheme of resilience and fault tolerance. Mm -hmm. And under the hood, I think it uses a, a Paxos consensus algorithm to do leader election. Um, there are others out there, for example, Raft as well, which we have used in other projects as well. Um, so yeah, and, it, and from a consuming library perspective, uh, you are able to just say connect 
and get me all the events for this stream. And that um, natively just gives you an eye, eye observable um, of data of objects, mm -hmm. which you can do whatever you like with. This is not exactly SQL querying. <laughs> no, not quite. No. <laughs> but it is interesting just to think about the fact that you, you know, that's how the data is organized and you pretty much have to write code to pull it out. Yeah. And, and which is essentially where you want the data to end up eventually, right? You, you yeah. always, you, that, that's, that's where you need the data. So it's actually really nice because if, at least from a developer perspective, it feels very low friction. Um, yeah. Yeah, and you can, you, and mm. you are, you are, you are, yeah, you're freed from a, a lot of the shackles of SQL Server mm -hmm. nuances, I guess. At the, at the same time, there's the backup restore strategy, but I guess you're presuming a lot of that. The, it's just resilient in the cloud. You don't have to worry about it. Yeah, so that there are there are different things you can do. Um, I mean, some people say say that um, it's it's an issue if you are keeping all records since the beginning of time. Um, right. But then you don't need to necessarily store every single piece of data in the event store. Uh, you can choose, for example, the important business logic areas, uh, mm -hmm. such as the trades. Um, and if it gets big, you can always shard across different uh, instances. Um, yeah. And if you really, really want to um, back up and store, you can always take a snapshot in time and then store uh, events from that point onwards. Yeah, I mean, you almost want to, and again, I'm thinking in terms of trading, like you can take a reconciliation point at some point and go, here are the balances. Mm. That is yes, one exactly. record that sort of represents the balances carrying forward and you can continue on and take the rest of that data. I mean, that again, the journal mindset is everything is re really read only. It's only ever written mm. once. It is never touched again. So it's, it could be read forever. Yeah, exactly. So I mean, that, that's, it's pretty reliable, pretty simple way to think, actually. It's just, it's interesting why these systems scale so well is partly to do with just the rules you have to follow on the right way to handle data. Yeah. And also, um, when you write microservices to interact with that, um, suddenly your, your data access layer becomes super simple because you're right um, with CQRS, um, your service, if it's a write service, then all it's doing is just posting data to an endpoint. And um, your read is literally, like I said, just an observable stream that you subscribe to. Right. So, and that's, it's pretty simple. It's just, it's really, really an easy way to go long-term. It'll, mm. it'll just keep working. Have yeah. you, have you tried scaling this? How many users have you thrown at it? So not quite yet. Um, we haven't quite done a mass load test yet, but uh, with our architecture, um, it should be able to handle a significant number of users mm -hmm. for, with no issues. Yeah, I don't see in your architecture any kind of bottlenecks. I mean, you're, you're using Docker containers and you're using Google Cloud and, and uh, certainly WebSockets is able to scale out. Yeah, and the fact that we ha uh, each client only has one WebSocket connection to the message broker mm -hmm. and not many to each microservice, that helps the situation as well. Right. Right. And so as, as you scale, you just add more instances, more containers. Yes, pretty much. So each microservice is uh, in effect stateless because um, it just passes on messages. So yeah, so if, for example... Uh, there's too many people doing trades. We can literally just spin up with Kubernetes to say, give me one more node for trade execution. 
And right. we, and, and then when that starts up and start heart beating, new clients would connect to that because that has a smaller load. And then, yeah, so that would get distributed nicely. How do the clients know about the new trade engine? Like what, what is a client checking in on essentially? Yeah. So there is a, because we have a central message router, um, we have a topic where we, uh, we have a well-known topic rather, um, where, uh, each service can broadcast its own heartbeat messages to. So all the clients, when, so when the client starts up, it'll initially subscribe to that well-known topic to see which services are available. And then it will, and it knows which service, which type of services it wants to connect to. So it will see that, okay, there is one instance of uh, pricing heartbeating. So I'll connect to that. Um, and there are two instances of trade execution running. So I'll connect to the one with the lower load. Right. So they're actually able to do a kind of load balancing themselves just based on how they measure load. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And how are you measuring load? Like what, what shows? Is it, is it number of transactions it's serving? Like what, what do you measure to say this one's busy, this one isn't? Again, that can depend on the application. We are very, sure. we're doing a very simplistic version where we just, we, do, we literally just count the number of connections, number of client right. connections we have to each microservice. It's um, not a bad way if everybody's following basically the same rules, right? Yes, exactly. As long as all your clients are only one kind of client, they're more or less going to exert the same kind of load and number of connections is a good measure. Yeah. I mean, eventually if in, I mean, in real trading systems, obviously you have, um, API client connectivity yes. and those trading bots may do a complete different trading profile. And obviously, um, because we would know that we can uh, accommodate that as well. Yeah. I mean, I would just put it in a different cluster. I've, I've been there yeah. with like, uh, external customers and internal users and they dramatically different profiles and mm-hmm. having them in their own pools so you balance them separately and so that they punish each other rather than everyone <laughs> we like it if they punish each other actually that's fine yeah it's like if you if you know it, it, the main thing there was it was an e-commerce site and you want the external customer the buyer's experience to be as fast as possible but you have these internal customers running these heavy weight things and so they may have slowed their own stuff down, but they didn't slow everybody down. Mm. Hey, Chiming, you said that uh, you're .NET Core all the way now, but it didn't start that way. How how did you um, how did it start, and what technologies did you use? And and let's talk about your migration. Yeah, sure. So um, again, we wanted this app to be very developer friendly. So if you if you are a traditional .NET developer, we want you to come to this project, open the solution Visual Studio, press F5, and it should be all working. That, that was our aim uh, initially. And then if you want to explore beyond that into stuff like Docker, Kubernetes, then, we, then you can take your time and slowly go there. Mm-hmm. So with that in mind, we, uh, yeah, so we, we, we literally started with the full .NET framework. Um, and yeah, so we, and then for Docker, um, we ran stuff in with with mono, and back in RC one days, you can still on Windows quite easily switch your DNVM into mono mode and then run everything on that to test everything was fine as well. And so, as the uh, the different did the different betas and things of .NET Core came out, what were some of the issues that you had to to deal with? And maybe you know we all know what the issues with the betas were, or at least anybody who's done work with it, but. Even just talking about architecture and things that are working, um, what were some of the hurdles? 
So, I mean, the crucial piece of the puzzle for us was the WebSocket support, which was missing six mm. months ago in .NET Core. Yeah. Um, at the time, we knew the architecture we wanted to implement. Um, so we did start running with Mono. Um, and like I said, when RC2 was released, we felt it was the right time to migrate uh, because the tooling has settled and the community was really gathering momentum to move to .NET Core. Right. And by that time, uh, we've kept an eye on the, yeah, this is the really nice parts of um, the Donut team doing open source. Mm -hmm. We did keep an eye on the repos and we can see that uh, we can see very clearly what their issues were, where their priorities were and what um, milestone they were trying to hit and what problems that would solve for us. Um, so when RCT released, we went sort of all in. Um, and even with some libraries um, that weren't ported to Donut core, mm -hmm. um, so people who have worked with it would know that you can still uh, import them. So in your project JSON, which is soon to be gone, but right. for now we have it. Right. Um, under your framework for .NET Core, you can still say import um, this PCR uh, framework. So that's any PCR library built uh, for that PCR framework. We'll say that's okay. We'll use it. Um, we'll take any runtime exceptions at mm -hmm. our risk. Mm -hmm. And that's actually what we did for Reactive Extensions, actually, because at the time, uh, Reactive Extensions 3 has not come out yet. And we were using 225, and that was only built for PCL. Um, so that's how we used that library for our .NET Core applications. And it was running, that, yes, yeah, that, that was running with no problems. And what, what's next? What do you intend to do now? Oh, good question. Um, yeah. So again, from a, um, from working in the financial industry, um, you fairly rarely get to play with something as open sourcey and, 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 and as free as this. Uh, you often have to integrate with legacy systems. So, um, yeah. So we really want to spread the word, word about Reactive Trader Cloud. We want people to have a look at it. We want people to, we want PRs. Um, we're open to any cool new ideas and we want to know what people think about the architecture because, um, yeah, we, we, we have really enjoyed working on it and it's, um, yeah, it's probably been, been the best project I've been on so far anyway. Okay. Well, uh, where should we keep an eye on this? Yeah, sure. So it's at github.com slash adaptive consulting slash reactive trader cloud. Um, and we have a, a live demo of the app on the web at web-demo at .adaptivecluster.com. And we also blog about it on the weareadaptive.com site as well. Fantastic. Chiming Liu, thank you for spending an hour with us. It's been great. And I wish you all the success in the world. Thank you very much, guys. It's been a pleasure. All right. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one recorded in September 2002. 
And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a